goodness, speed once again, and he's, oh my goodness, that is huge. It's a white flag for the Cuban. Hi everyone and welcome to the Triple Jumpers podcast with me, Marcus Lombard. In this episode, I meet the British Yumps coach, Jan Shepard. Jan talks a lot about triple jump training, his training philosophy, and the different elements of the triple jump technique. He also explains the differences and the difficulties about coaching both long and triple jump athletes, and a lot more. This episode is a little bit different from most of the other episodes we have done this far, but it has a lot of great content, especially if you're interested in understanding the training behind the triple jump. Now, enough talking, it's time to jump into episode number 14 of the Triple Jumpers podcast with Jan Shepard. Welcome to the Triple Jumpers podcast, Jan Shepard. Hello, Marcus. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Yes, it's cold over here in England, but not as cold as probably where you are. <laughs> no, I think it's pretty much the same weather here, and I'm in Sweden, so probably the same. Yes, I know, I know, okay. Uh, yes, I was there for the Sprints and Jumps convention in Karlstad last year, which was an interesting event. Yeah, exactly. exactly. We can perhaps talk about, yeah, we could perhaps talk about that later. Yeah. Okay, but to start, uh, I would like to I would like you to to make a little introduction of of yourself because I think a lot of people have seen your YouTube videos, maybe some of the listeners too, but uh, I don't think too many know your your background and where you where you come from and how you ended up being a coach. So tell us a little bit about okay. your background and. Well, I was a former international long jumper about 20 years ago. I jumped 7 meters 89, but I've always been involved with sport. I have a degree in physical education, and I've done sports development work and managed leisure centers. But about 12 years ago, I got dragged a little bit into coaching. <laughs> I was training myself. I was doing a bit of master's competition, and an athlete who knew me from my competitive days asked me to coach her. And I guess that's uh, where it all started from. And I picked up some other athletes in the South London area of the United Kingdom and had quite a lot of success quite quickly coaching, mainly in the long jump, but also in the triple jump. I had a European junior champion who jumped 7 meters 86 in 2013 and had the top three, no, three of the top four under 20 athletes at long jump in that year as well. And since then, I've picked up other athletes along the way and developed as a coach. I'm a coach for the England team. I've done presentations and sessions for Ireland and soon too for Wales. And um, yeah, I guess I'm learning all the time. So I guess that puts it in. Oh, I should say as well that um, I've been a journalist and a magazine editor for about the last 20, 25 years um, on either a part-time or a full-time basis. And I edited two major national fitness and sports magazines, Ultra Fit and Outdoor Fitness. And I've also written six books on aspects of sport and fitness. One of them is relevant to athletics 
a basic book called 101 Youth Athletic Drills, which is just about, which is it's about what the title is, 101 Athletic Drills. But basically my journalistic background, being all in sports and fitness, has aided my knowledge for coaching. And also I've picked up a lot of information on other sports and even other events through interviewing coaches, going to various events, participating in some myself. I've even done the World Indoor Rowing Championships four times with Concept2, the rowing company. So I met some of the Olympic rowers. So basically, I picked up through my, throughout my life quite a lot of information that's helping, my, helping me coach. So hopefully that's given you a little bit of background on me. Yeah, yeah, impressive. Uh, so uh, you also have a YouTube channel now that is has a pretty strong following. How did you came up with the idea of starting a YouTube channel? Funny enough, two two reasons really. One, us coaches tend to use our iPhones or phones to film our athletes in training and competition, but probably not a lot of us really go back and really examine the video. So I sort of started making the videos because it forced me to look at the content or the, the, the videos that I'd filmed of the athletes in action and started to get more analytical. Um, and secondly, because of my media background, I had a little bit of an inclination on how to make videos and the process of editing them seems to come quite easy to me. They don't take as long as some of them take a long time, but some don't take quite a long time. It's a little bit similar to editing an article for a magazine putting the video clips together and it's probably a lot easier because I'm talking about something that I know quite a lot about whether it be log jump triple jump and basically talking about what I see so that's how the channel started but I was very surprised that in two years it's got 15,000 subscribers and nearly two million views that has been a bit of a shocker <laughs> I yeah. never expected that to be honest yeah I think a lot of there's a lot of coaches around the world that look at your videos and take ideas from that. So I think you, you're doing great. Well, thank you for that. And it's nice to get contact from coaches and athletes from all over the world and see that triple jump and long jump and track and field is a popular sport, despite maybe in this country, and I don't know if it's in Sweden, some kind of decline at the top level. and dismay with drug tests and so forth and so on and the way the sports run. I think at the grass level, grassroots level, there are so many kids, young adults all over the world and coaches wanting to get better at running, jumping and throwing. So, yeah, I've had contacts from people in Indonesia, um, lots of guys in India wanting advice because I don't think coaching is so great out there. So American, Americans as well, Europeans, and consequently from the channel, a number of athletes have come over to train with me in the UK, so it's all been positive. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, so who is your in your? How big is your uh, training group right now? Uh, who is your, who do you coach? Well, well, it's um, quite a large group because I make a living, or fifty percent of my living is made through coaching. Again, partly through the YouTube channel, partly through people asking me to coach them. Um, so I coach, I think I might have just mentioned it, 20-odd people, but I guess at the highest level, the, probably the best athlete I have at the moment is Sarah Abrams, who's a 642 long jumper. 
Um, but I've also got um, a 7.79 long jumper, male long jumper, Paul Ogan. Um, last year, I coached Jonathan Elory to over 16 metres, 20 in the triple jump, and had um, a 13-metre female triple jumper as well. I had the some younger guys who I won't mention their names, but I had the third-ranked under-17 triple jumper in the country, the ninth-ranked, well, I'm testing my memory now, quite a few girls at various age groups in the top five as well for the long jump, and believe it or not, in multi-events as well, where I kind of hover over quite a few of their training programs, looking at speed, power, and obviously the long jump, but even a bit of high jump. I've just kind of been dragged into the multi-events a little bit, but I wouldn't say I was a multi-events coach. So that gives you an idea. I mean, in the past, as I mentioned, I coached the 2013 European Junior Champion, Elliot Sarfo, who went out to 7.86. Um, had another girl over 6 metres 20 in the long jump a few years back. So it's been quite a few, to be honest. Yeah. But, um, never anybody that's, well, winning the European Junior Championships and getting to the World Youth and World Junior Title uh, Championships are achievements, I guess, as a coach. Oh, I should mention one other guy that I've recently started coaching, although I was helping him for a year or two, Karim Chan, who's the T20 Paralympic World Junior Long Jump Champion. He's jumped six metres 70. And mm -hmm. working with para-athletes is... is um, a different skill set in some respects required, and I'm learning about that as I go along. So, quite, yeah, I've got quite a lot of experience, but nobody's gone on to Olympics or the World Championships yet. I'm hoping to get somebody there. Yeah. How, what would you say is is the most uh, difficult part of coaching para athletes? Or is it well, any with the T20s, where it's autism, for it, it's communication and, and and trying to work out what to say to them and gelling with their personality as well. It, it, there's all different levels on the spectrum and it's it's trying to find out or, or your pitch, your approach to their level and basically getting to know them. It's quite surprising sometimes. You don't think somebody's understood something and they actually have. It just takes a while for them to then learn it, and you have to just focus on one thing at a time, whereas that's sometimes difficult because as a coach, we might say, oh, you need to move your free leg, get your feet down quicker coming into the board, etc., um, swing off to take off, but you've got to try and make it more simple. And as we all talk, we sometimes say too, can say too much, like I might be saying now, but to, to a para-athlete, a T20, you, know, you have to try and keep it simple. So that's all. That's my experience. I've not done anything with the physical, physically and dis, disabilities athletes, but just um, the T20 autism, learning difficulties type of athletes. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it helps your everyday coaching because it makes you perhaps a little bit more concise, and it's trying to say it in the in the right way. It's easier. Uh, I think most coaches will say that it's easier to coach non-para athletes than para athletes because you have to take into account a lot more. There's certain things that they can't do or fully understand and don't have the, the same cognition to be able to implement what you're saying. So you have to take it back a step and think very carefully about what you're trying to do with them. Like maybe it's not such a good idea to train and change their technique. 
as one of the power athletes our coach suggested he wanted to, he's seen a hitch kick and wanted to try a hitch kick but it became quite difficult to get him to learn it initially we'll probably go back to it but sometimes it's best to keep it quite simple and use the technique and, and improve the elements where I see there's a bigger concern rather than focus on a wholesale change it's just got to be incremental changes if a guy is jumping six meters seventy and you can see that he takes off too high, for example, in the long jump, then you want to try to correct his angle of takeoff rather than, say, switch to a hitch kick, which may or may not make that angle of takeoff better. But, yeah, try and keep it simple. I think we should just jump straight into training and coaching. So, first of all, mm. uh, what is your what is the key fundamentals uh, of your training? What is your What does your training philosophy look like? I'm very much a specific coach. I don't want to have athletes do things that they may think are useful, but aren't really. It's a case of doing what you have to do and, what, and not, nothing more than that, really. Yes, of course, you do need some basic condition, but for a long jumper or a triple jumper, you need to be able to complete eight to nine four-second efforts in a competition. And that relies on the immediate, the immediate anaerobic energy system, phosphates, creatine phosphate, etc. So you need to train for high-powered outputs. And therefore, everything I do is geared at the element of the long and triple jump. So we're looking at the energy system's usage, short, sharp repeats. But I, all, I think I'm quite known through my videos for maybe attention to detail. I don't know whether I should put it that way, but... I try to break down all the movements required of an event and then we perform them via various drills and practices continually throughout the season. So, for example, the movement of the hip takeoff for both the long and triple jump is crucial. You don't just want to lift the hip. You need to be able to move it in front of you and away from your body, your torso. So we do lots of takeoff drills working on that. We also look at the foot strike on the board, the positioning, the foot coming back underneath the hip to generate more velocity across the board. So we do lots of skipping work and low skips as well as vertical skips and medium distance skips, if this is making sense. I'm very keen on plyometrics. So every session, or so we say, my main, let's focus on the older athletes. They train five times a week, four to five times a week because some of them are working. So they can't train as hard as a full-time athlete. So that's the other thing I think about. Why waste time? They've only got four or five days to train, a couple of hours each session. Let's maximize it. So it, all my sessions are, I would say they're, they're very technical. Um, units of drills to develop, as I said, takeoffs to the long and triple, um, arm actions, a lot of sprint work, working on acceleration, maximum velocity, um, we also do, as I said, the plyometric work, but I break down the angles of the hip angle, the knee ankle, and the ankle joint, I suppose, angles. So we do different types of plyometrics to work across slightly different ranges. I also try to coach the or train the triple jumpers slightly differently to the long jumpers, which is an interesting point. But that can be difficult when you've got five or six people in a training group and you're trying to coach them all at the same time. But I also use what's known as undulating periodization or block periodization methods. 
not traditional linear periodization. So undulating periodization puts all the ingredients of the training mix together and you just cycle them around for, over the training year. It's quite difficult to write down. Okay, with the linear periodization model, you can quite easily see the direction that you're going in. You start with the base of endurance work, strength, speed endurance, strength endurance, it's going to get more specific. Then you go composition specific, then you go into the true competition phase. And you may be able to get one or two peaks, well, depending on your periodization model. However, a lot of research indicates that those old linear Soviet-derived periodization approaches don't actually work to the fullest extent. And it's much better to, to train on an undulating or block basis where you never really lose sight of the event that you're training for. So we basically train very similar all year round. It's just that the volumes and intensities of the specific units that we're using all the time vary. So... We'll train acceleration in week two of training, maximum velocity probably within a month in a build-up format, 60-meter runs, 40-meter runs, just building up, building up so that you reach max velocity at 40 or 60 meters. So it's less intense and full-out sprints. We'll be doing a heck of a lot of work on the run-up and the run-up structure, which I think is sometimes lost. I think if you use a traditional approach to training, you can do too much general work, hit the weights, for example, hit the plyometrics, do lots of running to get yourself in shape. But you then lose sight of the fact that you've got, to, as I said, run for four seconds and take off, overcoming 15 times your body weight or more in a triple, and about 10 times in a long jump. So all my training is geared to that explosivity, and it's four seconds and that real dynamic rate of force development generation at takeoff and throughout the subsequent phases in the triple. So, yeah, I'd say my approach is... The less is more, that's another thing, less is more approach in that you need to recover between your training sessions and sometimes people can train too hard and they don't adapt to the training load. I think if I was training a 200 meter or 400 meter runner, you have to train differently because you've got speed endurance and you've got a different anaerobic energy system in the case of the four and even the two to focus on. So therefore you've got to have a greater volume of training to get that into speed endurance. But for the, for the long and triple, I think it's, when I say this, don't get me wrong, it's, it's one of the more simple events to train in terms of energy system and power development because it's so short-term. The conundrum, say, for the 200-meter coach is to develop absolute speed but be able to maintain that speed. So they have to, you, know, you can't run 30 meters or 40 meters or get, like our, our athletes won't run much further than 80 meters really most of the time throughout the training year. You couldn't do that if you were a 200 meter run. So yeah. I think the beauty of the long and triple jump is that it's very <laughs> measurable in terms of four seconds of effort and a takeoff and one energy system that really is responsible for developing all that, the quality of the jumper. So I think I've explained there my philosophy, very specific, breaking down all the elements of the technique. Oh, and a very heavy technical focus as well. That's one thing that I need to stress. From my own experiences in the long jump, if you're unable to take off effectively, you'll never jump as far as you you know, you know, could do. My best was, was 7 metres 89. I probably could have got over 8 metres if I... If I was coaching myself, I probably could now. But I could never take off properly. So when I coach 
focusing on the long jump in this case, but it applies to the triple jump. When I coach the long jump, because it's all about being able to take off effectively and get a knee drive, which applies to both the long and the triple. If you can't take off effectively, you're not going to go as far as you could. So, yeah, I won't go into huge amounts of detail on the technicalities of the positioning for the takeoffs unless you want, but from day one, basically, in training, we're working on run-up structure and ability to take off. So I think that's fundamental. And it's easy to get lost in the I'm going to get bigger argument. I'm going to go in the gym and lift a lot of weights. And um, you come out of the gym, maybe stronger, but it doesn't make you jump any further. And sometimes I have a few little arguments with some of the members of my training group. Some of them in particular have gone overseas to, um, to train where they've done a lot more weight training. And I'm saying, well, Going in the gym four times a week is not really going to make you jump any further if you're not doing any run-ups and any technical work. So, uh, yeah, keeping it specific is key. I feel like I'm going on a bit here, but there's one other thing that's just come into my mind. Talking about the weights, I do a lot of triphasic training, which is basically there's a guy in America, Cal Dietz, who's a physical trainer at one of the universities, and if you look, search triphasic training on the internet, his name will come up a lot. But it's not his brainchild. Basically, the Soviets, even over here in Britain, we were training eccentrically, concentrically, and isometrically. At, not, when I say commensurately, at the same time, not actually at the same time, but throughout training phases. A lot of people tend to just train concentrically. They squat, move the bar upwards. But for the long and triple jump, eccentric and isometric strength and indeed sprinting is crucial as well. Because when your foot strikes the ground, it has to absorb a lot of that 15 times body weight at triple jump takeoff. So you don't want your leg to give. You need to be strong eccentrically and isometrically. And then as the stretch reflex kicks in, the concentric aspect comes in. So if you neglect the eccentric aspect and the isometric aspects of training, and you're selling yourself short as well. So we will do a lot of eccentric and isometric weight training and jump work. I mean, the Soviets used to do eccentric jump work well, 30, 40 years ago. So as I say, nothing's really ever new in this world of sports training. Eccentric training for the jumping requires you to jump, for example, down from a height of a meter onto one or two legs and block the landing with minimal knee bend. So the stretch, the muscles go and stretch and they have to need pulls. You just stop dead like a gymnast at the end of their routine on the floor to give a, to try and bring it to visual, visual life. Eccentric weight training is time under tension. So you might lower to a five or six count doing a single leg squat. And then you can push up to a one count to add the concentric element, or you can just... If you're doing a single leg squat, put the other foot down on the ground and push up with two legs to lower again. So I've tried to think, as I said, with the technicalities of the long and triple jump, the physical requirements, and that shows again in my philosophy for strength training, for the plyometrics and the weights. And I'm trying to look at the key elements that are going to boost in, boost performance and not go down blind alleys. Or An athlete could be very concentrically strong in the first place. So why would you want to therefore add on a lot more concentric strength to them that may or may not improve their jumping? Whereas if you can get them, as I said, to take off better, to have more eccentric capability, then the chances are they're going to improve more quickly. So, yeah, just trying to be specific and really think about what 
the requirements are of the long and triple jump. And that's, yeah, that's what I do while I'm coaching. Yeah, sounds good. You know, if you want to, if you want to be, be good at something, you have to train just for it and not play around with, with a lot of different, uh, you know, general uh, things. Yes, I think, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, unlike, say, the American coaches, the collegiate coaches who get very good athletes come to them every year, if, you know, if we had that set up in the, year, in the UK and in Sweden or other European countries, we get better jumpers because there's a, you know, somewhat obvious, if you're a coach at one of the, the NCAA university and every three, well, every year you're getting the best jumpers in America and some of the best from Sweden, England, wherever, you're going to have success. Whereas the Swedish and British coaches, we have to work with the athletes that come through our front doors. So in some ways we've got a harder process to develop the talent. Um, we don't have 20 to 30 long jumpers rocking up in October who've all jumped over 720 or whatever. I'm maybe exaggerating there, but you get the picture. We're starting off often with very young athletes and trying to nurture them through to the top level um, with more limited resources as well. So that's why I try to think very specifically so that I teach a young person how to take off first so that they can improve throughout their lifespan or their athletic career. Yes, and not waste their time either. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a different world over here in the UK compared to say the American collegiate coach and the European and our, my fellow European coaches. We don't have quite the same resources, and nor do the athletes. So we make the best, try to make the best athletes we can from the resources that we have. And uh, in your training group and. You have both uh, long and triple jumpers. How is it to mm -hmm. to coach uh, long and triple jumpers? Like, what is the differences and similarities of of the training and etc. I suppose speed is fundamental to both events. Somewhat obviously, the run-up structure and run-up accuracy. So there's broadly probably the same in a way long and triple jump training for the runner, although the step placements coming into the takeoff are different for both events, with a long jumper needing to go more vertical, hence a slight lowering more of the centre of mass mass on the penultimate step, and the triple jumper trying to run through the, the board, albeit the last step is more or less the same for both long and triple jump. There's less setting up in the in the long in the triple jump compared to the long, long jump. So run up work is broadly the same. Um for the triple jumper, I tend to do more plyometric contact work, so they'll be doing more bounding and hopping. But again, not over huge distances like 30 meters or very rarely 20 meters. It will be hop, hop, step, hop, hop over 15 or 20 meters with a run on, so that they're developing the ability to come out of speed. Also, two hops in the step is very hard, particularly the second hop to get a range of motion. So it's trying to, again, be specific and keep the intensity quite close or very close, in fact, to what they're going to have to do when they actually triple jump. Now, again, I'm referring to an established athlete with a younger 14, 12, 13, 14, 13, 14-year-old triple jumper who's starting out. You wouldn't do quite the same. 
so yeah, a bit more plyometric volume for the triple jumper. Um, but a lot depends on the physical qualities of the athlete, and that's you know, that pertains to both the long and triple jumper. You can, I've tended to find that triple jumpers can often long jump, but really good long jumpers are not so good at the triple jump. They often the long jumper often comes from a sp- sprint. I call them jumper sprinters or sprinter jumpers. Whereas a triple jumper is perhaps more of a jumper and that they can transfer their ability between the two events. So perhaps in some respects, training the, if, you, if you're training specifically enough, long jump training could probably coach it would be quite good for the triple jumper in some respects in that they, they have the physical skills for the event. Uh, I think I messed that one up. I meant to say if you're training, training for the triple jump, a triple jumper doesn't have to do that much long jump training to transfer to do to, to perform pretty well in the, in the long jump as well. But the, the differences are that the triple jumper needs to be able to maintain their speed and power across the three phases or the two contacts after the hop in particular. So the training must be specific to be able to do that. But the technique of the triple jump is is so crucial as well. I only hesitate because I was going to say and the long jump because they are. You have all the power and speed in the world, but if you don't affect it properly technically, you're not going to go as far as you can. So you've got to look at your angle takeoff, the positioning of the free leg as you come off the board for the triple, the arm action that you use, the arm action throughout the, rep, the step and the jump phase, the side position, the knee angles, etc., the contacts. So it's a, the more you know it, the more you get get into it as a coach, the more you understand how this, well, I suppose the more you understand what you that you didn't know as much as you did when you thought as much as you did. Let me say that again. The more you realise you didn't know as much as you thought you did. I've had to hesitating again because thinking of the, the female and the male triple jump, they're different events in a way, in terms of phase ratios with the women having a, a much shorter step in comparison to the males and same contact times, but less ability to impart force on the ground. So you have to train slightly differently and really try to understand the athlete you've got, their physical qualities and the specifics of the event in order to get the best out of them. We might have to rewind on that question. I think I answered it. That was training triple jump and long jump. Yeah. At the same time, did I more or less? Yeah, I think yeah, I got true. the answer. Yeah. yeah, okay. I can add a little bit more on that yeah. if you want. I sure. don't know. If I can, yeah. The drill. Okay. The drills that we do for the long and triple jump broadly similar, but they have their nuances and specific differences. So skipping drills, for example, the long jumper may well not may will want to get their foot quicker to the floor in order to get a quicker, straighter, more vertical takeoff. Whereas when you're working particularly on the step phase, coming out of the step phase, when you're doing a skipping drill, you want to lead with the hip, knee and foot and push it much further in front so that you get more of the clawing, pawing motion onto the track surface with the foot in advance of the hips, which the long jumper doesn't have to do. So I'm just using that as an example of how the drills that we do are changed for the long and triple jump. So they can all be doing skipping drills but the triple jumpers ones will have slightly different nuances they may use a double arm action for example instead of a single arm action yeah and what are your experiences from a coaching perspective when it comes to conditioning athletes in 
in the long jump and, and triple jump, you know, the difficulties and yeah, your experiences uh, when it comes to conditioning athletes uh, in both long and triple jump. There's a tendency sometimes for a long jump or a triple jump specialist coach to just be seen as somebody who can coach the other event. So when I started out, because of my own background in the long jump, and I knew more about the long jump than I did the triple jump. I subsequently found out I didn't know as much about the long jump as I thought I did 12, 10, 12 years ago, and I've learned a lot more. The triple jump, because I never did it myself, I have less affinity with the event. So I've actually had to study it more and get more feedback from other people. So you have to learn, to, as a jumps coach, whether it be the long or the triple jump, you have to get to grips with the physical qualities, the biomechanical qualities that are required so that you can then train the person for that event. You can't just apply long jump training to double jump training and vice versa. They are different events. But the unfortunate thing is a lot of other coaches or, yeah, yeah other coaches will assume, some other events will assume that because you can coach the long jump, you can coach the triple jump and vice versa. And it's not necessarily the case. There are transferable elements, but they are different events. You know, it's like saying because you play badminton, you can play tennis. They're not. You know, they're different. They're different sports, really. And in a way, the long and the triple jump are different, and they need specific. They, they do need very specific training to maximise the potential of each athlete, of each discipline. So all I'd say to any prospective long and triple jump coaches is to you'll have potentially a stronger a stronger event. You need to get to grips with the weaker one. <laughs> yeah. Don't be afraid to ask other coaches for advice. I mean, I've spoken to various England coaches in particular about the triple jump in order to develop my knowledge. And I've also spent a lot of time on YouTube and <laughs> looking at research to try and further my knowledge so I understand the triple jump as much as I do, or at least as much as I think I do in the long jump. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I've, I think I've just about got that one. Not, yeah. not and what about the, the double arm versus single arm action? What are your opinions on that? What is most efficient? Well, that's a million dollar question. <laughs> because of my, um, right, yeah, because of my, um, I suppose, editorial background, I've written quite a few articles on on that for Athletics Weekly, UK's weekly athletic magazine title. Computer models suggest that a double arm action throughout the three phases is going to get, is going to get you the, the furthest because of the propulsive and the balance between the phases. However, top coaches like Nelio Moura, the Brazilian coach, favours a quarter single arm action push. I think that's what Will Clay does at the moment rather than a double arm action because you can generate more speed through the takeoff. Now, Christian Taylor is, I believe, if my memory serves me right, statistics quicker through the board than Will Clay and he uses a double arm shift but his arms come back very very quickly, there's hardly any significant backward movement of the arms so that is the key, if you're doing a double arm shift it's got to be very very quick because I believe Taylor likes a double arm and his coach Rainer Ryder likes a double arm action because of the balance it ensues in the subsequent phases, with a single arm action you can be slightly off balance going into the hop which then will transfer itself throughout the other two phases. Um, 
I'm beginning to come, having said that as well, and despite like the theory, the, the, the biomechanics, the sports science, I'm beginning to think that the quarter push method could be more beneficial because it can just generate more speed across the takeoff. And that is key. The more speed you've got, the further you're going to go, everything else being equal, as long as you're strong enough to handle the contacts with it. But uh, if you've got a, a slower, more powerful jumper, then you might want to consist with a double arm action. But it, again, it's looking at the strengths and weaknesses of your athlete and trying to work out what really works for them. <clears throat> when you say double single, but how many women do double arm actions? Very, very few. It's a single arm action, single arm swing. Either the arm goes over the top on takeoff or goes through, and then it's a counter, counter lateral arm swing action that's the right word for the step and then the arms then go overhead in the jump phase so you've got women that tend to try to do the double arm action don't tend to jump so far but maybe it's because they're not coached sufficiently enough with the use of the double arm action sufficiently so we don't really know whether if they did a double arm action it was more beneficial for them so I think in a bit of a circuitous way I've answered the question Probably the same quarter arm push method I'm coming around to more now yeah. with the younger guys that I'm coaching to try to get them to, because a lot of the younger ones, when they do a double arms, they start taking their arms back on the second to last stride and their arms go too high behind their shoulders. It pushes the, the chest force forward the torso and they take off in the wrong position. Whereas if you move your arms naturally through the takeoff, then you're more likely to you know, run off the ball to run through the takeoff. But it's just a push. It's not like a sprinting action. The, the forward arm just goes slightly in front of the hips that take off. So, yeah, hopefully that's answered yeah. that question. Yeah. Don't you think that uh, uh, that uh, when women try to to do the double arm action uh, and failing because you you need to have a certain air time in order to, in order to get your arms behind you and get uh, everything efficiently uh, get the power efficiently yeah to, to I the, mean to the arm yeah. you know I understand I think from why from some of the research that I've come across it's the contact times are not that dissimilar between the phases what the women are less able to do in the step phase is impart so much vertical velocity on the contact So you could put, to put that in simple terms, you could say they're not so strong. So basically, they're on the time for the same amount of time or very similar to the male jumpers, but they can't exert so much force. So therefore, yes, they can't get their arms into the position to, in time to give them the, the propulsion that the arms will give into, in, with a double arm shift. So they tend to open the arms and drive through using the free leg, I would assume, more than you know, getting less benefits from the arm action um, I think a woman's this is, I mean this is at a certain level, I can't generalize totally but I think women's step phase is around about 28% of the total distance and men's around about 30% so like high 29 to 32% so that obviously makes a big difference um, but it's down to the vertical velocity in aspect of the take off the contact they're not able to exert so much force on that contact coming out of the hop and the arms don't seem to be able to get back in time to do that but as I say if you had a young person a young female and started doing double arm actions with all their bounding and everything from a very early age 
it's conceivable that they would develop accordingly and be able to do it. I think initially the females tend to do it more rhythmically and less powerfully, and then you set you kind of set your stall out, as we say in the UK, right at the start of the training development of an athlete. Whereas if you said right, you're going to do a double arm shift from say 13, 14 onwards. Conceivably, by the time they get to 24, 25, it might be a different um, different situation. They might well be able to do it very effectively. Yeah. There's a suggestion for some coaches in the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See what they think about that one. Yeah. In the triple jump, what do you think is the most difficult technical parts uh, of the triple jump? Hmm. Hesitation because it's quite. A, I suppose it's making your contacts live, dynamic, so that you're transferring your speed through the phases, but waiting. You can't rush through the phases, so you've got to almost off the ball fast on the hop, and then delay, sweep the, the hopping leg round, extend, and then don't try to hit the ground too hard either. I mean, I usually that's on the on the contact. I mean, I use the analogy of playing tennis. If you try to hit the ball too hard, it's invariably not going to go where you want it to go. So the timing aspect is crucial. So learning to delay the, 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 the movement into the contact throughout the three phases, uh, throughout the, the, the step and the jump phase, and then time the contact with the foot coming back towards the um, centre and mass of the body from an advanced position, I think that's the key and getting your angles right as well. I mean, we have a big debate on angles because a lot depends on the specifics of the jumper, but generally speaking, a lower takeoff angle is going to get you further than a, a high angle. So but if you've got somebody who's more eccentrically strong or more bouncy, a slightly higher takeoff angle might benefit them. But to answer your question, yeah, holding the phases, preparing for the contact and not hitting the contacts, too quickly if that's making sense timing your contact so that you bounce like a stone skimming across you know when you throw a stone across a river or something you have to throw it at a low angle to get it to skim to bounce so it's trying to create those contacts that just propel you forwards almost effortlessly effortlessly like Jonathan Edwards at his best like Christian Taylor it's just ping 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 through the phases yeah. and I think a lot of that is down to the, the training Technical, but also the reactivity, making the athletes quick off the ground as well, so they don't have to think about it. Training the muscles, ligaments, and tendons so they naturally, using that word again, ping on the contacts. So a lot of the technical aspects of the triple jump go back to the and the long jump go back to the conditioning. If you condition the athlete properly, then they should be able to affect the technical elements a lot more easily as well. Okay, okay and um, what about? Uh testing do you like to test your athletes or are you not into that or what is your view on, on testing i've changed my opinion slightly because i do more testing i've tried to do more testing than what i've done in previous years i'm hesitating because largely i'd say that i'm a semi-professional coach so i'm working with different athletes at different times so we're not always able to test the way that I would want to. And also, you, unless you've got access to high-tech kit, for example, timing gates, you're not going to be able to time some 
with the parameters that you would want for the long and triple jump, i.e. The, the last five metres or even the timings from the final step three, step two, step, step one, and the time on the takeoff board, etc. I mean, I have, as people who watch my videos know, a free lap timing system, and that has some limitations in terms of what you can time, but we do use that to, to test for 20-metre times, occasionally 10-metre times, I'd like to do more 10 metre timing, but there's a story behind that, which I won't go into, with the system. So uh, we also do some bounding tests relatively regularly, four bounds and a jump with a six to eight step approach. But you see, again, because I'm a long end triple jump coach, uh, <laughs> the, the, the bounding test will tell you if the, the long jumper is improving in their, their power power ratio, whatever, rate of force development power ratios. Up. The takeoff for the long jump is quicker and has different dynamic to the triple jump one. So from a triple jump perspective, a four bounds and a jump test to me is more relevant to the triple jump. So yes, we will do that. For the long jumper, I may be looking at single bounds or two bounds with a higher, higher velocity approach because I just need to have one takeoff. So my testing, rather like my training, tries to be specific to each of the jumps, if that's making sense. I mean, obviously, we can tell if somebody's getting stronger from their weights numbers. Um, some of the athletes in the group are um, boosting their concentric strength this year after a number of years of working predominantly centric, isometric, and plyometric strength. So we can tell from standing long jumps if their concentric strength is improving, obviously from the squat, simple things like that and cleans. So probably everyday tests that most coaches use, utilize, but I must say that I try to be specific with the tests and not just test for the sake of testing. Um, I can tell generally if an athlete's in the right type of shape at the right time of the training year from the jumping that they're doing. So generally, I can I joke with my training group that at the beginning of every season, I write down their performances in a brown envelope and stick it under the bed, and then I get it out at the end of the year. And generally, it's all in my head. It's not there's no brown envelope, but generally, I'm pretty close because you can sort of tell from how they're progressing in training. I'm very rarely surprised. <laughs> Put it that way. So that a guy jumped 786, another guy jumped 1626, and you knew it was going to happen. And other coaches might say, you know, all, our, all us coaches say, oh, this athlete's going to do really well, and it's often taken with a pinch of salt. I tend not to say that too much but to other coaches, but, you know, sometimes I say, oh, you best watch out for this athlete because they're going to do it. And I'll only say that when I know they're going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, my test, I suppose, in a way I'm saying that as a coach, you've got your subjective measures of performance as well as the um, objective ones. You can look at the... The reactivity when they're doing drop jumps, if their reactivity on the floor is slowing, then as a, it's not really a test, but it's an evaluative method to either curtail that training session, give them more rest, or, um, they, or they need to work on it. You have a young athlete, who, and you say, right, we'll do any centric drop jumps, so step off a, whatever, a 75 centimetre high platform, land on two legs, and block the landing, don't give up the knees. If they give up the knees, you can generally work out they need to do more eccentric strength. So that's, you know, basic things like that. If, as I've had, I've had a 17-year-old turn up and standing long jump three metres 20 with actually no training, you say, hang on a minute, this guy's got loads of concentric strength. 
we don't really need to get him lifting heavy weights. Not that I would with a 17-year-old, but you're getting the picture. I hope that you can be. Once you develop a bit of knowledge as a coach, you can use your, your knowledge to, to to test somebody to see what they're doing and try and work out what training they need to do to, that suits them, and also to see where they are in the training year in terms of you know more formalised testing. So it's a, it's a mixture, some formal tests and somewhat you know, just using your eyes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you have uh, you have been coaching athletes in, in different age groups and dif- different levels and uh, probably different body types, etc. So how is it to coach yeah. different types of athletes? And do you individualize a program or do you have a general program for everyone? Or how do you make it as good as possible for for each person? Mm, that's a good question. If I was 100% a full-time coach and the athletes were full-time or at least able to get to the track when you wanted them to get there, your best bet would be to train each athlete individually to work out what specifically works for them or at least say 60-70% of the time because you would need some group training sessions for the competitive element. So as I'm working in an environment where I have six athletes or even 10 young ones like 13 to 17 year olds, You tend to go to be a bit tend to be a bit generic. So I think though, to answer the question, if you in my case, by being specific with training, you're going to get results. You're not gonna waste time having them run two hundreds and one hundred meter reps or something to get them fit when when maybe loads and loads of skipping and takeoff drills would do just the same thing, but much more specifically. Again, going back to what I said in my previous answer to the testing, you can look at the athlete, the young athlete or an older athlete, and look at what they need to do. And so within a training session, we might be doing oh, takeoff work. I've got one young athlete, good triple jumper and long jumper, who is incredibly eccentrically strong. How do I know that? Because when he goes to do the long jump, he does a takeoff like Echeverria. He goes straight up into the air, but unlike Echeverria, he doesn't go forwards enough. So we have to get him to go across the takeoff quicker. So therefore, I've got when he's jumping and I'm giving him drills, I'm giving, giving him cues to move forwards quicker through the takeoff or the skipping draw, to use the free leg more to set himself up differently for the takeoff. So I think in a roundabout way, I'm doing it as I go along. I'm training people specifically by eye um, in the heat of the moment, which hopefully over time gives them the right type of training. Ideally, yes, it'd be great to have an athlete one-to-one, as I said, for about 60% of the time. Then you can really focus on them, test them, look specifically at the biomechanics and really get to grips with it. But I don't think many of us coaches have that opportunity to do that. So you're somewhat reliant on your um, on your eye and your ability to to do things on the fly, to be specific, to give somebody a slightly different drill, as I've given an example of, with the eccentric ability of one athlete, to another athlete who's quick, who, who, who doesn't have that, that type of ability. Again, um, it, it's just, yeah, using your coach's eye. Yeah. Different body types is... It's another question, and so is maturation and development of young athletes. Again, as a coach, you learn as time goes by that an athlete might be going through a growth spurt or have early onset of maturation. 
where things slightly start to change in the body very quickly. And you don't want to rush the athlete at times like that. Again, in a group environment, it can be difficult, both the athlete, because the athlete wants to keep going and you as a coach might not see, for example. See, you know, even though I've just said that, hopefully I'll see it, but if you've got 10 athletes all training, it's very easy to forget that one of them is in a slightly different growth spurt period than another, for example. So I think coaches just have to be aware of who they're coaching and have all those knowledge in their armory, at least to be aware of what might be happening in front of them. Because if they are, then they can, as I say, respond on the fly and hopefully make some adjustments to each individual athlete so they get the best out of the training that they're doing. And without wanting to go round in circles again, yeah, ideally, if I had all the time in the world, I'd analyse each athlete and give them an individual training programme and sit with them each session and go through it if they're obviously cognitively able to. You wouldn't do that with a young athlete, but with an older one. But yeah, you don't have the time. To wrap it up, we have a few quick uh, questions from our Instagram followers as well. Um, okay. So, <laughs> Kenny Okoye uh, wants to know how to get height from your uh, second face, or how you how you can get a more efficient second phase. All right, well, on the second phase, you're always going to experience quite significant lowering of the center of mass. So in a couple of centimeters of a hop, it's maybe 18 to 20 centimeters on the step phase. So, but to try to keep the leg length as you contact the ground, you are going to bend with the knee, but you've got to think that you're going up through the phases. But it comes down again to the transition from the hop to the step the waiting for the contact and the three leg swing. Also, you can attempt to lift the three leg higher during the step phase. So it will go to near parallel or parallel as you're coming in, going into the step phase. It's more metaphorical than actual, but try to keep lifting the thigh more so it stays up in front of you before you go into the um, jump contact. Okay, and yep. then, then uh, Keenan. 9999 uh, wants to know mm-hmm. if you have any tips on how to better how to get better on controlling the speed on the runway mm. that's a perennial question that I get asked for the long and triple jump simple answer you need to work at high speeds and long run ups and trainings throughout the training year don't just wait till one month before your first competition to put a long run up down and start jumping You have to be working off medium to long run-ups very quickly in the training year. You don't need to do loads and loads of jumps. And sometimes just a hop off the board will be sufficient, maybe in October. But you can't wait until December, early January, to put down a 15-stride, 16-stride approach for the triple jump and expect to get any distance from it. Your neuromuscular system, your reactivity, your rate of force development won't be in tune with what's required. So be specific again. And don't do too much slow bounding either. So everything's got to be congruous. It's got to go, everything fit together. So you need to be bounding off longish, not, well, six to eight steps. Don't do standing bounds unless you're a novice. So again, so you're working at more speed of contact. If you don't do that, then you're not going to be able to maximize. You, you won't handle it. How many times have us coaches said, oh, coach, I'm running so fast I can't take off, and that applies to both the triple jump and the long jump. 
Well, you would be able to take off at speed if you trained for speed and the ability to take off for months and months and months previously. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and the last question. Magnus Asko wonders if it's a good idea to not do triple jump until he he's a bit older. He He's 17 now, so he wonders if, if he should wait to do the triple jump or just go. Well, 17, you're going to be relatively mature for a male in particular. So I don't see any reason why you shouldn't do the triple jump. And it depends, of course, of what other background, training background he's come from, what his level of training is. Yeah. But there's no reason why you can't start. Yeah. I, mean, I could give a longer answer, but that's a short, sharp answer. Basically, no. I see no reason why you shouldn't. Exactly. Okay, mm -hmm. and uh, at last, who do you want to see? If you could invite a guest to the Triple Jumpers podcast, who would you like to listen to? <laughs> I think everybody says it, Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> Yeah, think, um, yeah <laughs> the most elusive triple jumper in the world. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I can't think. Mike Conley, there you go, somebody like that who was jumping prodigious distances, both the long and the triple jump. He's one of the few guys that has jumped, I think he's won Olympic medals in both both long and triple jump. So somebody like that would be very interesting to find out how they trained between the two events and managed it. And I think he also ran 20.2 for the 200 metres. So that would be a very interesting um, subject to have on your show. Yeah, okay. Okay, John, thank you so much for taking part in the podcast. I I think you had a lot of great things to say, and I learned a lot from, from you today. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me, and good luck with the show. It was very nice to hear John breaking down the key fundamentals of the triple jump and really dive into, you know, training and philosophy, etc. It's really, really interesting. I really enjoyed this episode and I think a lot of people have a lot to learn from John because he's really good. He he knows what he's what he's talking about. I hope you liked this episode as much as I did and uh, thank you very much for listening. I will soon be back with another episode. Until then, have a good time. Bye. Tremendous speed once again. And he's, oh my goodness, that is huge. It's a white flag for the Cuban. Edith Atmo for la posterité. Ah!